Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Today is the sixth day of the month of Kislev. Kislev is the Hebrew month which has in it the festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is on the 25th of Kislev. Um, so that makes Kislev a very exciting month. Hanukkah is such a beautiful festival, a very deep and powerful festival with significant messages that are very relevant to us in our times. And so hopefully we will have a chance to talk about Hanukkah as we get closer to the festival of Hanukkah. I would like to make some references about um, some days of Kislev. So today is the 6th of Kislev, and um, the 8th of Kislev is Friday. 8th of Kislev is actually the site of Golda Meir. Golda Meir was the Prime Minister of Israel. She was born in 1898. She died in 1978. And she was a great leader of the Jewish people. She was born in Kiev in Russia, and she was subjected to brutal pogroms and moved with her family to Milwaukee in the United States at the age of eight in um, the year 1906. Ten years later, 1916, she was organizing protests against pogroms in Russia, and she decided to make Aliyah. And she became involved in politics at the age of 24. Um, and she was, uh, she rose to prominence uh, very rapidly. She was a very smart and capable person. And she was one of the signatories of Israel's Declaration of Independence in 1948. She became Israel's first ambassador to the Soviet Union. And she also became prime minister. Um, she was the prime minister when the Yom Kippur War broke out in 1973. And she famously said that peace will come when the Arabs love their children more than they hate us. And so we remember Golda Meir, her Yotzad being on Friday on the 8th of Kislev. Shabbos, this Saturday, this Shabbos, Friday night, Saturday, the 9th of Kislev is the anniversary, an important anniversary in the history of the Jewish people, in the recent history of the Jewish people, Anniversary of when a boatload of Jews in 1940, there were actually 1,600 Jewish immigrants on that boat, and they fled um, the Nazis. They were fleeing Europe and the persecution of the Nazis and the murder of the Nazis of the Jewish people, and they were denied entry into the port of Haifa on the 9th of Kislev, 1940. And the British deported them, and they sent them to the island of Mauritius. At that time, the British had uh, had crumbled to the pressure of the Arab world um, to restrict the Jewish immigration into the land of Israel. And obviously, the Jews of Europe were desperate, and uh, their, their situation generated an uh, illegal immigration movement, but the British were vigilant in denying them entry. So some ships, such as the Struma, a very famous ship, they sunk and hundreds of the passengers were killed. 
And so on, on Shabbos, the month of Kislev is the anniversary of a boat of 1,600 Jews being denied access into the port of Har Haifa. Um, they ended up in Mauritius. So that's a, a significant and interesting date, the 9th of Kislev. The 10th of Kislev, which is Sunday, also marks an interesting anniversary on, uh, of modern Jewish history. And that is in the year 1977, the Egyptian president Sadat, Anwar Sadat, addressed the Knesset in Yerushalayim on the 10th of Kislev, which was a momentous occasion. Sadat was the first Arab leader to officially visit Israel after receiving an invitation from Menachem Begin. Sadat had orchestrated the Egyptian attack on Israel in 1973, which was the Yom Kippur War. As we said, Golden Meir was the prime minister at the time. But after suffering defeat, he, Sadat became resigned to the existence of the state, existence of the state of Israel. And much of the Arab world was outraged at Sadat's visit and his change of strategy. One year later, Sadat and Begin in 1978 signed the Camp David Peace Agreement, um, for which they both received the Nobel Peace Prize. As part of the deal, Israel withdrew from the Sinai Peninsula in phases, and it returned um, the, that area, that entire region, back to Egypt um, by 1983. As a result of this momentous and significant move of Sadat, making peace with Israel, and the peace still remains with Egypt, which is a wonderful achievement and something that we should be very proud of, and um, and we should uh, always appreciate its importance and significance. And um, as a result of Sadat's movement towards peace with Israel, making peace with Israel, he was assassinated. He was killed by uh, Muslim extremists who couldn't tolerate the peace with Israel. And uh, uh, Baruch Hashem, some other Arab states have followed in the lead of Egypt and have also made peace with Israel. And Israel is open and willing to make peace with her neighbors um, as long as, you know, as long as there was a, is a genuine uh, motivation for peace from the other side. You know, as they always say, um, to sum up the Middle East conflict, that if the Jews put down the weapons, they would be killed. If the Arabs put down their weapons, there would be peace. That pretty much sums it up. And we see that very clearly with um, the life and death of President Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Okay, great. So um, we're going to get into some very fascinating and uh, interesting ideas. Um, we'll do so in a moment. Please stay with us uh, and we will continue when we return. is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's talk a little bit about some of the very rich and powerful lessons that we learned from the um, Torah readings at this time. We're reading Sefer Bereshit. And last week we read Parshas Toldos, which is just so fascinating, so powerful, and there's so many principles that have played out over the centuries that are established and described in Parshas Toldos. Um, and I'm referring specifically to the difference between Yaakov and Esav. 
we know that Rivka was pregnant, and after many, many years, her and her husband Yitzchak had waited and had prayed and had longed for children. When she did fall pregnant, so she realized that something unnatural was going on inside of her, something extraordinary, because she felt within her tremendous turmoil and upheaval and inner conflict within her womb. And she asked her friends and said, you know, did you also experience such um, such things when you were carrying, when you were pregnant? And her friend said, no, you know, we had a little bit of turbulence here and there, but nothing too severe. And she therefore realized that obviously there was something different and unique going on with her. And so the Torah says that she went, she went to see what was going on. She went to a person who had prophecy, who had the ability to see beyond our mundane, single-dimensional world. Um, today we don't have anybody who's got the capacity to do that. If somebody says they can, they're lying. Usually they do it for money. And so they're just trying to exploit you and trying to take advantage of you. Today we don't have that capacity. Today we have people that maybe are sages, have wisdom, can give us advice, can give us what we call Das Torah. But nobody can tap into the eternal worlds. Nobody has that prophetic power in our day and age. And she went to Shame, who was the son of Noach. And Shame told her that um, he, he had a direct communication with Hashem. And Shame told her that, that there are two nations inside of you. And they're going to be constantly at loggerheads, that they won't be able to exist in harmony, there won't be a balance of power, when the one is up, the other will be down, when Jerusalem is up, Rome will be down, as Rashi explains, when Rome is up, Jerusalem will be down, there won't be a peaceful coexistence. So the question is, and obviously those are the sons that were born to Rivka and to Yitzchak, Yaakov and Esau. The question is, why is it that Esav is different? We see with regards to Yaakov that Yaakov can successfully coexist with the other nations. According to our holy tradition, there's 70 nations um, in the world that are mentioned, and all the nations we have are a follow-on or a continuation of those 70 nations. And Yaakov can coexist with all the other nations, um, even with Yishmoel, as we, we mentioned, Anwar Sadat and the peace treaty with Egypt and the peace with other Arab states. So there is a possibility for Yaakov and Yishmael to live in peace, in shalom together. Um, the question is, why is it not possible to coexist in a peaceful way with Esau? In other words, it's one or the other. And there's such a beautiful insight that I saw, um, but uh, that I'd like to share with you. There's a beautiful Midrash, it's in Yalkut Shimoni. And the Midrash, it's... Uh, it's Midrash Kufiud Aleph in Yalkut Shemoni on Pasha's told us that says the following. Um, Yaakov, we know, has, a, he buys the birthright, the, the right of the firstborn. He purchases it from Esav. Um, and the firstborn, the right of the firstborn actually was a very important, significant spiritual legacy that a person would take on, that a person would receive. And that was actually the service of God and the representative of the service of God in the family. That's how things were originally set up 
in the ancient world. Yaakov saw that Esau was not fitting for that, that Esau's behavior um, was a contradiction to that, and therefore that it would be very dangerous and very destructive if it remained in the hands of Esau, the rights of the firstborn. And so Yaakov purchases it from Esau. The Midrash says um, on the Pasuk, Machra kayom es b'chura sechali, amru kashayu Yaakov Esau b'mei iman. So the Midrash says, when Yaakov and Esau were within the womb of their mother, Amale Yaakov le'Esav. Yaakov says to Esav, Achi, my brother, Shnei oilamos lefaneinu. There are two worlds in front of us as we're going to get born. Ha'oilam hazeh, ha'oilam haba. This world and the next world. Ha'oilam hazeh, yeshbo, achila, ushtia, umasa, umatan. This world is eating and there's drinking and there's business. Lisa, isha, there's the marriage. Uh, people get married. And the birth of children. Ubanos, um, sons and daughters. So that's this world. It's a physical world. The next world. As it says, sell to me today your, the right of your firstborn. Right. In other words, so th- this world is a physical world, and the next world is a world is all spiritual. So Yaakov says, "Sell me, let's make a deal. You'll sell me the next world, and I'll, and and you will have this world. You'll inherit this world. I'll inherit the next world." On that day that they were in in the womb of their mother, miyad kafa esav betuchias amazing. Shemar hine anoichi hoylech lamus. So they made that agreement, and immediately Esav, he denies the existence of the resur- resurrection of the dead, which represents the whole spiritual uh, direction of this world, um, and immediately he, deni- he denies that. Um, says, So at that moment, it was sealed, that Esav would receive his portion, which is this world, and Yaakov will receive his portion, which is the next world. So the kasha, the big question over here is, why is it? So Esav wants this world, right? He wants the the pleasure and the power and the engagement in this world, and he doesn't see any value in the spiritual world of eternity. But why is it necessary for the Midrash to say that miyad koifer, Immediately, Esav then denied the existence of the spiritual world. So it's one thing to make a choice and to choose, do I want to live in this world or I want to live in this world? What's my priority going to be? But it's a whole different thing to deny the next world, to deny the existence of spirituality. And that really is the the essence of Esav and the clash between Yaakov and Esav. Because there can be a world, a people in existence, where, you know, the, the normal way of a human being, a normal human being actually has um, a, what we call a Yetzirah. It could be a, re- a normal human being, a regular human being, has a, um, has a higher side and a lower side, a part of their being, which is what we call the Neshama, the Yetzirah, which is their aspiration to achieve greatness spiritually, to live according to a higher moral system, to connect to God and eternity. That's the Yetzir Tov. And the Yetzir Tov is in constant 
loggerheads and struggles. It's in battle. It is a war, an inner war, um, with the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah wants to pull a person down. The Yetzirah wants to make a person constantly connected only to the physical and the body. The Yetzirah, the Yetzirah and the physical part of our being is, is obsessed with the appetites for power and pleasure in this physical world. So most people, um, have that struggle, that inner battle between those parts. And often they, a, a, a normal healthy person ascribes to, tries to reach beyond themselves and follow a higher moral system, that which God laid out for humanity, for human beings. And we're not always successful in achieving that. We're not always successful in dominating and controlling our Yetzirah. And sometimes we stumble and we fall and we sin. But the normal person will say, okay, I, I gave in to my lower self. I wasn't able to control myself. And I fell in that area. I'll pick myself up and try and do better next time. I'll engage in the good fight and continue to, to strive to improve. That's the normal trajectory of a human being in this world. Comes along Asaph and Asaph changes the rules of the game and the terms of engagement. And Asaph says, why should I feel bad? Why should I have a conscience? The um, I am free to choose what I want to do, how I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. There's no limitations to my opportunities. I have discretion to decide exactly how I want to live. And I don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want to have a conscience. I don't want to feel guilty that I've done anything wrong. And therefore, Asaph manipulates his worldview and life philosophy to suit his tithes, to suit his desires, to suit his lifestyle. That is a whole new reality that we're dealing with. That's a major departure in human behavior and in the, the life of a human being. So Asaph manipulates and justifies his evil behavior with philosophies that back it up. Right Before Asaph, before that point, people realize that they try and live one way and when they're not successful to living up to that moral code, so they will accept that they made a mistake but will try and strive to do better next time. Asaph doesn't accept that. Asaph doesn't want to have a conscience. Asaph says that there's no spiritual world, that there's no moral system that I need to subscribe to, that there's no God and creator to this world. That's a whole new level of evil. That's that's a, a different ball game altogether. And that's why Esav and Yaakov cannot coexist. That is the antithesis of who Yaakov is and what Yaakov stands for. And therefore, there's a there's something called Mechir Samalek where Yaakov has to wipe out this ideology, this view of life, this anti-God approach to the world and to existence. And that's the clash between Yaakov and Esav. And that's what was going on in the womb between Yaakov and Esav. And that's what Esav, that's why it says Esav is miyad Because when he, he chooses this world and rejects the next world, he doesn't want to have a conscience about that. He doesn't want to feel bad. He denies the existence of spirituality and of godliness. We see later on he changes his mind, Esav. He, he does whatever suits him, whatever is going. And he actually, when he sees Yaakov and he says when Yaakov comes back after he's been with Lavan for 22 years, he comes back and he says to him, um, you know, he sees his family, he sees his, his whole entourage, 
he says, wow, you've got the next world and not this world. And this is what, this is what this world looks like. So I want some of the next world as well. So he sees all over the place. So he does whatever suits him, but he builds a philosophy around his lifestyle of riches, of evil behavior, of complete hedonism and not having any self-control and limitations. And that is a new level of evil, which is the antithesis of what the Jewish people stand for. So that's why they can't coexist, Yaakov and Esau. And that's why when the one's up, the other's down, and vice versa. And that's why Esau sells his Bechoira, and he denies the existence of, of God. And I think it's a very relevant message for our times, because we live in a time where in our world and the philosophies of Western society have reached a point now today where most of the world's got the chutzpah, has got the guile to deny the existence of a creator and to say, why should I subscribe to any moral code? Why do I have to be limited in any way? Why do I um, have to feel bad about my choices? I, I'm free to choose and behave as I wish. I can even choose the gender that I want. That's how far we've gone. In other words, there's no system, moral, higher system that we accept and we, um, and we subscribe to. And, and, and along with that is obviously the denial, the denial of the existence of a higher power and of a creator. And that's a tremendous clash that we in, in our times, in our society, in our world. And the role of the Jew is to reject that. The role of the Jew is to accept that there is a God which is the most simple thing in the world. It's just so obvious that there must be a creator. The sophisticated nature of our magnificent, exquisite world we live in is crying out to us all the time and telling us that message, that there must be a creator who's got a purpose for the intelligent design in the world. Everything we look at cries out to intelligent design. And that tells us that we... Um, this world was created for a purpose. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's not by chance. And we all have a role to play in this world. And our role is to pull ourselves up, reject our lower selves, and give a voice to our inner soul, to our neshama, to our eternal part of our being, and let that guide us and rule us and connect us with God and with eternity by following the framework of the Torah by fulfilling God's commandments, which are the mitzvahs, by raising ourselves up above our lower hedonistic selves. So that's our purpose and function. That's Yaakov, and that's our eternal clash with Esav, and certainly the philosophy of Esav that tells us that there's no meaning, that there's no purpose, that there's no God in the world. That's a, a very powerful, valuable principle that comes out of last week's Pasha. And as we go on, we see... Yaakov and Esau go on and live their lives and um, and get involved in the things that they do. And Yaakov becomes a very holy human being who is able to connect with God. Esau becomes a very hedonistic person and is very much caught up in with this physical material world. And we see that um, Yaakov goes in to get his blessing from his father Yitzchak. And Yitzchak says, Hakol kol Yaakov. Sounds like Yaakov Yudayim Yuday Esav. These are the hands of Esav. And it's a very interesting and strange pasuk that, that the voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esav. Um, you know, why are they together? What does it mean? So I heard a beautiful perush of explanation of that verse from Berah Pesach Kron, quoting the Vulnagon. Vulnagon says that 
the way that verse is written in the Torah is kol, which means a voice, usually is written in Hebrew kuf vav lamet. But the first kol of that pasuk is written without a vav. So it's written um, kuf lamet. And that could be read kal. Kal means light or means soft. So you could read that verse, says the Vulnagon, hakal kol Yaakov, yudami When there's a soft voice of Yaakov, the voice of Yaakov represents the voice of Torah, the voice of learning Torah, and the voice of tefillah, praying to Hashem. When that voice is soft, when that voice is dim, Yadayim Yaday Esav. So then the hands of Esav will be dominant and will be powerful and present in the world. And so um, Yitzhak is saying that when it's a kol Yaakov that is strong and that is bold and that is powerful, so that weakens the hands of Esav, that diminishes the power of Esav. When it's a kol Yaakov that is soft and that is weak, so that's when Esav is in control, is in power, and dominates Yaakov. And that's how it works. That's how, um, that's the formula of how things function in the world. And, and therefore, it's telling us, the Goan is saying that it's telling all of us, all of Klal Yisrael, all of the children of Yisrael, of Yaakov, that we need to push ourselves in order to ensure that we strengthen the voice of Yaakov, the Kol Yaakov. That we need to make sure that we can do all in our power, in our realm of existence, in our sphere of influence, to try and strengthen the Kol of Yaakov. Whether it's our own Kol, our own voice and learning Torah, we all have to learn Torah. Whether it's supporting Torah as best we can. Whether it's ensuring that our children get an authentic Torah education. Um, and we... Ensure that uh, we we uh, are insistent that our children get an authentic Torah education and strengthen the call of Yaakov in ourselves, in our families, in our communities, and in the world. And the call of Yaakov also means the call of tefillah, of davening. We strengthen our shuls, our orthodox synagogues. We ensure that they are vibrant and are strong and we participate in them and we support them both in terms of our presence and in terms of our financial support in order to Give the call of Yaakov strength. And when the call of Yaakov has strength, so there's a tremendous ripple effect, both in Klai Yisrael and in the world. The ripple effect in Klai Yisrael is that it's a protection for the Jewish people and a source of blessing for the Jewish people. And the ripple effect in the world is that the nations of the world that want to harm Klai Yisrael, which is always the case, you know, as we can see constantly, just look at uh, Israel's foreign policy and the situation of Israel in the United Nations. What a bias there is and how much anti-Semitism there is against Israel. But we are protected against that force when the call of Yaakov is strong and powerful. And so we all need to play our part and contribute in our own way in strengthening of that call of Yaakov. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. back. Are you a good teacher? Are you truly passionate about helping children? Are you willing to volunteer your help? Chai FM would love to hear from you. We are going to be starting a homework helpline next year and we'd love to hear from you. The homework helpline is not only for children in our community but for all of the children in South Africa who need academic support and help. To find out more or to be a part of this 
worldfirst, email info at chayfem.com. So we see after Yaakov gets the blessings from his father Yitzchak, Esav is very upset and Esav is very angry that his son has, his brother has outdone him. And so he's gunning for his brother. Rivka receives this information via the most uh, reliable source of intelligence possible, which is Ruach HaKodesh, which is a connection to the higher worlds. She has, Rivka had Ruach HaKodesh. She had what we call divine inspiration, a cup of, of prophecy. And she received a message Hashem communicated to her that Yaakov's life was in danger and that Esav's intention was to harm him and to kill him. And so she informs Yaakov and she says to him, you should leave here and you should go find a wife, go back to my town, my village, the place of my birth, and find a wife from there. And uh, Rivka and Yitzchak send Yaakov off. And he goes to to Haran and he goes to the house of Lavan, which is Rivka's brother. But on his way, Rashi tells at the end of last week's Pasha, uh, he, he goes through a whole cheshbon, a whole calculation as to the life of Yaakov and the years that he was in his parents' house and, you know, the in- events in Yaakov's life. And Rashi works out that there are 14 years in between when he left his parents' home and when he arrived um, at the home of Lava. And Rashi says that those 14 years, um, Chazal, he, we learn out from our sages, that he learned in the yeshiva of shame forever, in the yeshiva of um, shame and ever. And the Pasuk says that after those 14 years, he then continues his journey and he heads towards the hometown of his mother, Rivka. It says, the Yishkav b'makom in the beginning of the Swiss Pasha, the second Pasuk, says that he lay down at that place. Rashi says, b'makom he lay down. In that place he lay down. For the previous 14 years, the shame of Eva, he didn't lie down. In other words, he stayed up and learned Torah all night long and he was very diligent and very committed to his learning of Torah. It says then, when he lay down in that place, which is actually the place of the base Amikdash, Chara Moria, the place where the temple was built, where the Kotel is today. It says, Vayachalom, and he dreamt. Yaakov had a dream. Vahine Sula Mutzav Atza, The ladder is, reaches down to the ground, and its head goes up to the heavens. Vahine Malache Elokim Oilem Vayordim Bo, and there were angels of God that were ascending and descending the ladder. Why are they going up? I should be coming down and going up because he was leaving Eretz Israel. The special Malachim, we are accompanied by certain spiritual forces in the land of Israel. Those ones go up to Shemaim and they're different ones that accompany us in Chustaris. That's why we in Israel, we feel like they, we feel much more connected and closer to Hashem. That's the nature and power of the land of Israel. And then, and continues, Hashem Hashem is at the top of the ladder. So this is Yaakov's dream. So the question is, one of the great Rosh Hashivas of our time, um, Rabbi Zalman Rotberg, who's the Rosh Hashiva of Or Baruch, he says, how do we know, how did the sages know that those 14 years that were missing were spent in the Yeshiva shame favor? And he says something quite brilliant. He says, because we see in the content of Yaakov's dream that his head was filled with Torah. In other words, Yaakov's dream was a reflection of his subconscious. Those are our dreams. Our dreams are already a playing out of the thoughts of our mind in the day. So Yaakov, if he's dreaming about Melachim, about Hashem's angels, now please don't think of when we say the word angel of a little baby with wings on its back. That's not a Malach. That is a very distorted view of what a Malach is. A Malach is a spiritual force 
that's given a mission and purpose from God and that he's sent to this world to carry out that mission. And that's how everything happens is through the shlichus, through the uh, the malachim fulfilling their mission that Hashem sent them to do. So Yaakov's dreaming about the malachim and Yaakov's dreaming about Hashem at the top of the ladder. Yaakov's head is filled with holiness and kedusha. Says Rav Ratberg, that comes from his mind being in Torah, in the concepts, in the ideas, in the thoughts of Torah. And therefore it's carried out in a dream. He explains it in a beautiful way. He says that, that uh, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, I heard this from Rabbi Shlomo Farhi, who's a rabbi in New York. Um, Shlomo HaMelech, who was um, a great king of the Jewish people, the wisest of all, of all people, when Shlomo ascended to the throne, so there was a lot of, you know, politics and a, a lot of backstabbing, you know, it's nothing new. We see the political world is a very ugly one and a very vicious arena to enter into. And nothing is new. That's how it's been for thousands of years. Shlomo HaMelech, when he ascended to the throne and became king, so there were a lot of forces that were undermining him, and particularly leading those rebellions were actually his brothers. Um, and Shlomo has a dream. And in his dream, Hashem says to him, that I will, I see what a hard time you're having. I'll give you a choice of three things. You must choose one of them and I'll grant you one of those wishes. You can either choose wisdom or you could choose wealth or you could choose arichas yamim, a long life. Hashem gave him one of those three choices. And in the dream, Shlomo chooses wisdom. And Hashem says to him that since you have chosen wisdom, um, I will actually not only give you wisdom, but I'll give you the other two as well. I'll give you all three. So the question is, okay, great. Shlomo does that in his dream, you know, but why does Hashem give it to him in reality? Like dreams are not reality. And most of our dreams, we shouldn't worry too much about our dreams. We shouldn't worry at all about our dreams, whatever they are, because they're just, as we said, playing out of what's going on in our subconscious mind and um, that we're thinking about during the day. So Shlomo Amelech, he gets, Hashem gives him what he dreams. You know, why is there significance to that? He, 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 in the dream, he said, I want wisdom, and that's why Hashem gives it to him. So, um, Rabbi Rothberg explains something brilliant. He says that we see since the dream is a consequence of our subconscious, of what we've been thinking of in the day, so it shows if Shlomo chose wisdom even in his dream, so it means that that's what his longing was for. He was connected to wisdom. His life was dedicated to gaining wisdom, to learning wisdom, to to advising others in a wise way. That was who he was, and that's why it played out in his dream. So the dream was a reflection of who he really was. You know, that was me, and I hadn't slept for 14 years. I would be dreaming of, you know, the most comfortable ma- comfortable mattress, sealy posturepedic. You know, remember all those adverts? That's what would be my mind. But Shlomo Melech's mind is wisdom, right? He's dreaming about wisdom, which reflects the fact that he was completely connected to and focused on wisdom. And that's why Hashem gave him all three. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why Yaakov, that's why we can see that Yaakov, who dreams about Malachim, angels, and dreams about Hashem at the top of the ladder, Yaakov's mind is in Kedusha. Which means he must have been in Yeshua Shem Veiva. He must have been learning for those 14 years. For his mind to be so fixated on Kedusha and holy things, and that even in his subconscious, in his dreams, he's thinking about those things, means that he must be in an environment of, of learning and of Torah. 
of Kedusha. And therefore, that's why Chazal say those 14 years were in the Shiva Shem Ba'eva, because that's a reflection of what, or of what went on in Yaakov's dream, which is a beautiful, powerful thing. And there's a great lesson for all of us from that. And that is that, um, there's a, a statement by Rosh Shiva used to repeat it often. It's a statement of the great and holy Chida, Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who was a great Sephardi rabbi in Jerusalem. He was born in 724. He died in 1806. The Chida wrote many, many, sorry, many, many works. And the Chida said, he said, you are what you think. What's going on in your head and what you fool your mind with, that's who you really are. That's a reflection of you. And that's going to be us in the next world. We are left with who we are, with what we think. And so, therefore, we should all make a great effort to think about God, to see God in this world, and the world screaming so loudly. We just have to take all the schmutz out of our head and out of our ears and hear Hashem's voice crying out to us in the intelligent design of the world around us, of the world of nature. As I often mention, I love the African bush. You just hear an overwhelming cry of Hashem's presence. You see Hashem everywhere in the bush, in its perfection, in how intricate it is, in how vast it is, in how perfect it is. And it's the same in the human body, and it's the same in human beings, to see Hashem's presence, the neshama, the soul of every human being, the the spark of Hashem, and every every person is just an incredible creature. A, 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 a creature with tremendous potential and that's so vast and that's so nuanced and that's so deep every human being. So we see Hashem's presence in the, and the presence of spirituality in the world around us and we're supposed to live with that consciousness and live with that awareness uh, with Torah thoughts and, and Torah in our minds and not all the schmutz and the nonsense of Facebook and of Instagram but of Netflix and of Hollywood. That we're supposed to block out of our heads. That's nonsense. That's a distraction. The thing we're supposed to bring into our mind is Torah, is God, is our purpose in this world, is serving Hashem. And that was the example of Yaakov Avinu as we see from his dream and from what the images are in his dream because that's where he was and that's who he was. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So to summarize what we've been saying is that Yaakov and Esav have this eternal clash. It uh, originated when they're in the womb of their mother and it was it's a clash over the existence of God in the world and whether we as human beings strive to live with a God consciousness and and a um, conscious attempt to see God and to connect to God and to fulfill the will of God in the world or as Asaph says that doesn't exist we free from that that's not part of who we are and what we're doing over here and that's the eternal clash between the two when the Jewish people are strong and are living up to their purpose and their mission of serving God, of seeing God, of connecting to God. And the call of Yaakov resonates in the Bate Midrashos, in the Bate Knasios, in the shuls, in the study halls of the Jewish people, when that call of Yaakov is strong. So then the hands of Esav are weakened. But when the call is kal, when it's weak and when it's, when it is dim, so then Esav is powerful and Esav dominates. And that's how 
the world works. And that's it's really up to us. It's really in the hands of Yaakov to strengthen that voice. And that will automatically weaken Esav. Or if we turn away from that voice and the call of Yaakov is not heard, so Esav is powerful and Esav dominates the world and Esav dominates the Jewish people. When Esav dominates the Jewish people, so that's when we experience suffering, destruction, hardship, and uh, and absolute obliteration of the Jewish people, as we've seen in our turbulent history. And finally, the last point we made was that the role of strengthening that voice of Yaakov is actually filling our heads with that voice of Yaakov, making sure that the voice of Yaakov is what occupies our thoughts, is what our focus is in our lives. When there's Kedusha, when there's sanctity, when there's holiness, when there's the words of Torah, when there's the ideas of Torah, when it's the principles and philosophies of Torah, is that what is, if, when that fills our mind through our learning of Torah and through our davening to God, so then we, um, we fulfill our purpose and our mission in this world. And it even occupies our subconscious. And, and in fact, that's what, you know, we think that the algorithms that exist in the world, they originated with uh, Google and with Facebook. The algorithms were created by God. An algorithm is really our subconscious. The subconscious is carrying through the momentum of the content of our thoughts during the day, and that's our dreams. Our dreams are the algorithm of our mind, because that's what algorithms are. They're just continuing to connect you to the similar kind of thoughts, uh, of things that you're watching and that you're listening to. They just associate with similar things. That's how the al- algorithm works. So that's to the way the human mind operates and functions. And our dreams, we're supposed to be on a lev- level of kedusha, of sanctity, that even our subconscious thoughts, our dreams, are absorbed with, are filled with, are abundant with the Torah, with the sanctity and holiness of the Torah, as was the case with Yaakov Avinu. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.